Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Welcome to another fantastic episode of the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day, and I had the blessing of connecting with Margaret Feinberg this week. Margaret is an amazing communicator, speaking regularly at conferences and events across the country. She and her husband, Leif, pastor a church outside of Salt Lake City, Utah. She has such a tremendous heart for really extending the hope and grace of Jesus to others. Margaret is a best-selling author, and you will definitely want to check out her latest book entitled Taste and See, Discovering God Among Butchers, Bakers, and Fresh Food Makers, which is available now from Zondervan. Now, in this week's episode, Margaret and I talk about the importance and beauty of hospitality and its place at the core of God's mission. Margaret shares many practical, simple ways to embrace hospitality both in your church and in your homes, including why leaving some things undone opens incredible opportunities for your guests. She also shares a helpful unlocking question that you can ask guests to engage in life-giving conversations. But before we dive in, I want to let you know about a great opportunity that's coming up for your churches. You can invite your church to the movies to see the movie, I Still Believe. Now, this is a film based on the true story of worship artist Jeremy Camp. It's a life-changing story of tragedy, love, and faith, and you can get group tickets. Just go to istillbelievemovie.com and click group tickets. So be sure to check that out. And now I want to invite you to join me in my delightful conversation with Margaret Feinberg. Margaret, so good to have you with us. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. Thank you. It's a delight to be with you. So a central motif of scripture really revolves around this idea of hospitality. And I love what you have been sharing about hospitality recently through your talks, um, through your recent book, Taste and See. And I'm excited about our conversation today because um, hospitality is, you know, big in my heart, something that um, as, as part of my ministry has always been uh, just kind of an important element. But I kind of want to start a conversation thinking about some other conversations that I've had with people who are outside of the church. And uh, some of the concerns um, that have been raised is that the church isn't always that hospitable, or at least that's that's the feeling from some who are outside the church. So can you talk to us a little bit about why you think that people are not perceiving the church as being um, a, a super hospitable place oftentimes? I think often when people walk into a church, unless we're highly intentional with our volunteers, our greeting teams, that often, you know, people walk in and they're already uncomfortable. And if someone isn't reaching out to them immediately, welcoming them in, ushering them into a place where they can feel comfortable, where they can feel like they are seen, that they are acknowledged, that someone has reached out, asked their name, perhaps repeated it to them, done just simple acts of of being hospitable, of showing the heart of God and the tender care of that. Uh, I think it's easy for people to walk into a church and walk out with some sense of no one saw me, no one recognized me. I feel more isolated 
than I did when I walked in because I took the great risk of coming in. Uh, I also feel like often in the church, you know, we are guilty and myself included of using insider language of terms and phrases and inside jokes that those who are outside have no idea what we're saying. Again, continuing to reinforce that perception of isolation or rejection or non-inclusion. And so I think it's essential that all of us as leaders become highly sensitive to the ways that we can show the heart of God, which is the heart of hospitality to everyone who is coming into our churches and our meeting places and as we go out into the world and as we open our homes. Yeah, that, that, that's so good. I think that's spot on. And you have shared a lot about how hospitality like directly relates to God's purpose, right? And God's mission. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about what that looks like? And, and I'd love to kind of dig in a couple different ways. Um, because you're on the front lines when it comes to ministry, you know, you know, within the church, but also outside of the church. And as you mentioned, kind of our own as Christ followers, you know, in our own homes, and our own neighborhoods. So can we dig in a little bit um, from a church perspective and then maybe from, you know, kind of a home perspective of how hospitality connects with God's mission? Mm. You know, I want to actually back up even further into just a biblical perspective, because I feel like the word hospitality sometimes is hijacked and assigned to perhaps a particular gender. It can be hijacked and to a, a certain gifting, not recognizing that all of us are called to hospitality and that hospitality, no matter how gifted you are, no matter how good you may feel at it, actually begins in the presence and in the person of God. In the very beginning of Genesis, when God laid out the garden, um, I think that he laid it out like a five-star Yelp reviewed meal. I mean, the <laughs> creation was this place where I think that Adam and Eve did not just walk and talk with God, but they noshed and they nibbled. And so we see God providing for basic needs. And even after an act of willful disobedience, God does not turn his heart on food, something that is a, of a communal nature that draws people together, but he keeps using food and food imagery throughout the scripture to draw people's hearts back to himself until Jesus shows up on the scene. He reveals himself as food stuff, uh, the bread of life, the, the true vine, uh, the shepherd who cares for sheep, the anointed one, the one who, who some believe that when he returns will actually be slathered in olive oil. And when the church emerges, we find that the, those who are waiting for it and the falling of the Holy Spirit are to do what they are, to gather around a table and break bread. We look at the life of Christ and he is either going to a table when he is not coming from a table, when he is not eating at a table, when he is not multiplying the food of the table. And so even when this whole shindig goes down, how does the culmination come? It comes with the biggest, baddest banquet of all time, the marriage supper of the lamb. And so God's heart for hospitality, of drawing people together, of having people come to a place where they break bread, where they eat. It is a powerful thing. And it is this place that this heart of hospitality comes. And I think it's so beautifully demonstrated in and through the consumption of food. Because if when I sit down with you, Jason, and we share a meal, when I take a bite, there's something that happens that is a confession that I cannot do life on my own. I mean, as you described, God could have made us any 
any way. And yet he imbued us with tens of thousands of taste buds. Mm -hmm. He didn't make us so that we would simply, you know, breathe air or lick a stone in order to survive. (laughs) But rather, he created this cornucopia of colors and textures and tastes. And every time I sit across from someone else, or even if I do it on my own, and I, I sip something, or I take a bite of something, the very act of that is confessional in that it says, I cannot do this life on my own. And that whether you're conscious of it or not, that you are dependent on a creator God who hangs the stars, who spins the sun, who provides that, that he is our sustainer. He is the one we depend upon for our food. And so I think when we back up from this biblical perspective of hospitality and that it emanates out of the very heart of God, the very heart of Christ, then we can start to emanate and and begin to partake in the conversation of what that looks like for us more in the church as we gather around the table and the heart of that hospitality and the involvement of food in that. Yeah, it's great theology of hospitality. Thank you for for um, pulling us into that and beautifully said. Um, so let's let's now talk about what that looks like. You know, kind of practically speaking. Um, in the church, how do we um, foster hospitality? Um, how do we enter into that with God, but enter into that in such a way that is tied to God's mission as well? You know, my uh, husband, Leif, we moved to just outside of Salt Lake City about four years ago to plant a uh, church campus. And one of the, the biggest parts of, of our church is this element of hospitality and our greeting teams uh, who, who are assigned, you know, areas and places and times so that everybody coming into the church is not just greeted once, but then is interacted with hopefully multiple multiple times. Uh, those who we set out on the hospitality team, um, we have one gentleman who um, is is very far on the spectrum. We have another who uh, has a wheelchair. We, we make sure that the, the people who are out representing represent the generosity and the love and the, the sense that everyone is welcome in this place. So I think the greeting teams play a, a really significant role, but but another role within the church is not just the conversations, but it's figuring out how can we gather people around this element of food, where they are in indeed by eating and drinking, making confessional um, uh, statements to each other that, that there is this sense that we cannot depend on ourselves. Uh, one of the things that we've instituted in our church, so so we live in a very highly competitive town. I know that must sound like a funny thing. And so it would be easy to have a gathering around food, but we we made it into a food competition. And one of the members of our church built this trophy uh, that slowly got bigger and bigger. And so every month, the second Saturday of the month, we have this food competition and they, they have themes. So we recently had the, the Super Bowl party uh, food theme, or we might have kids food theme or pizza theme, whatever it is. And people come and they bring their very best. And then it's voted on by everybody who's there and different people win and then they sign the back of the trophy. But it's in these gatherings around the food that we keep seeing that the walls are broken down, that the conversations are naturally happening. Um, But it's also not just within the church and the intentionality there. Of course, it's in the homes, Um, inviting people in different ways, giving them space to form these communities, these small groups, et cetera, that are true to the DNA, but still incorporate some aspect of, you know, of, of discussion, of prayer, and of the breaking of bread. 
Yeah, that's good. I love that, Margaret. And, and great thoughts and ideas about how to kind of incorporate this and champion this in in the local church and, and in our homes. One of the things that, that you shared and I think is is really freeing, I think, to a, a lot of people when it comes to hospitality is is you've shared how there was a time in your life when when you were going to open your doors of your home to invite people in, you really spent a lot of time to try to make your home look, you know, model home perfect, right? Because, you know, you wanted everything, no clutter, everything cleaned up, everything looking beautiful. But you had kind of a shift in your thinking um, in that regard when it came to hospitality. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah. And even to paint even a broader perspective on hospitality. So when I did the research for Taste and See, Discovering God Among Butchers, Bakers, and Fresh Food Makers, it really looked at food in the Bible, but it started to shift. And I probably spent the last 18 months or so really thinking about every detail of what does it mean when somebody comes into our house? What is that? What does that heart of God look like in a palatable way? And so when you come into our home, first thing we do, we live in the West uh, here in Utah. We have a lot of dirt. So we ask you to take off your shoes. And that is uh, often a common practice in this area. I know for some of you that must, may sound really strange. Uh, we, we give you little uh, booties or little socks if you need them to keep your feet warm. But then you come in and, and I like to put out appetizers, often like meat and cheese, a kind of charcuterie plate in the kitchen because we recognize that the kitchen is the heartbeat of the home. And there is something, whether it is in your church or in a home, that people have this magnetic force that draws them to the kitchen. So I figured, let's just make that a place to, to gather around, to stand around, to start to talk, to, to pour, you know, first beverages and snack and, and gather there. And uh, near our kitchen, there's a dining room table. And I, I, as you alluded to, like I used to clean up everything. I grew up in a house where my mom, I mean, it was, it was spot clean when people came over because you wanted to give them their very best. And that, that's a beautiful thing. But what I realized is that, you know what, it always makes me feel nervous when I walk into somebody's house and it looks perfect because I am so imperfect. Mm. And so what I've started to do is I leave this pile of papers, like kind of imagine that corner drawer in your kitchen that catches everything. <laughs> so I will take all of the junk that has kind of been on all of my stuff and I will just put it in a pile on the side of the dining room table, but, and just leave it there. I, I don't hide it anymore. And what I'm trying to communicate to everybody who comes into our house is we are not perfect people. We are messy people and we welcome messy people here. And then in part of that greeting, often rather than eat in the dining room, because there is something sometimes about dining room tables that feels a little stiff, a little formal. We actually eat in our living room on the couch. Um, some people sit on the floor and we just gather around. Uh, you know, if somebody has a particular physical challenge, uh, we will definitely eat at the table so that we can make it as comfortable for them as possible. But our friends know that when you come over, like we just gather in the living, we're just going to eat there because this is where we do life. Um, we also have stocked our house now with things just to be thoughtful and considerate. Um, often we don't consider, uh, you know, I have various friends who have had uh, different accidents or battles with cancer. Uh, my friend Michelle Cushet, who's just beautiful and wonderful, um, has had like, you know, throat cancer multiple times. And what happens is if anybody has had an injury in their mouth, 
often it's difficult for them to eat. And there's a lot of shame around that. And so one of the ways that, that we prepare for that is we always make sure that we have straws in our house so that drinking a beverage is a lot easier for that person. Um, and I'll be honest, they're not always metal straws because sometimes metal straws can be difficult in those situations. But again, thinking about what can I do with the different physical limitations that people may have to make this place a, a place of grace and a place of, of acceptance and a place of warmth. And, and then as, as I prepare for you coming over long before you have come, I will, I will spend quite a bit of time praying and just asking that God will show up, that Jesus will pull up a chair, that the Holy Spirit will just will just allow us to sense his presence throughout the night. And somewhere during our time, I will ask an unlocking question. And it doesn't matter where you are in the spectrum of your faith. If you don't want anything to do with God or you have been a passionate follower for a lot of years, I will ask the question, where have you sensed God or, or the spirit or the divine or however you want to phrase it in working in your life recently? And, and so often um, I will see people's hearts change as they think about that. And it will open the door to spiritual conversation and, and often talking about Jesus. And, and so it is a vast landscape. It is a lot of intentionality. But I remember, man, I used to I used to gather around tables and, you know, I mean, it was fine and it was fun and the foods were great and the apple was wonderful and it was great. But, but every so often, maybe one out of 10 or 15 times, there would be that time where you'd have that meal and you'd walk away and you were so full, not just because of the food, but because of the conversation and the connection and the sense of God moving in your midst. And what I've found is that with these intentional acts of of just preparing these things through prayer, through gathering people, through kind of disorienting them in such a way that they can be truly known that that now we're having those kinds of nights, maybe 10 or 12 out of 15 nights, where we walk away so full because we have encountered others and we have countered the presence of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's really beautiful, Margaret. And, and what strikes me is just, and you mentioned this, this intentionality that um, that oftentimes when we're thinking of just kind of getting together with others or, or whatever, we don't um, necessarily give it the attention. I mean, I guess relationally, we don't give relational attention as much as we might give attention to, like you said, making sure everything's cleaned up or, or making sure the food is just perfect or, or whatever else. But we're not thinking beyond that when it comes to actually the individuals that, that are walking through our doors and what God is stirring up in their hearts and in their lives and how we can kind of, like you said, unlock that and enter into that alongside of them. So I think that's just beautiful um, for our own homes. Also, that relates to our churches, right? The same intentionality as we're welcoming guests into our churches uh, and, you know, praying for those people God will bring through the doors, you know, that, that transfers whether we're gathered together in a corporate worship gathering or we're in our individual homes. Um, just to have that on the forefront, I think, is, is um, such a beautiful way to approach such an opportunity that we have relationally through hospitality. It's true. And also, I mean, when you think about it, I think one of the most um, one of the most successful and powerful tools that's being used in the church in America right now is is Alpha. 
and that course. And through that, what you see is it's not just the space to just simply ask questions rather than pretend any of us have any answers, but to ask questions, to allow people to process. But it's always done with a meal. Right. And it is that sense of hospitality, that expression of it through food, that all of a sudden people begin to open up and, and what a crucial role that hospitality plays. Because we are living in an increasingly polarized, divisive culture. And yet it is around the table that all of a sudden we can break through so many of the challenges, so many of the separations between people, so many of the, 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 the hands extended out, I don't want anything to do with this, because it's a around the table that issues that were once black and white become flesh and blood. And suddenly we hear people's stories. We're able to listen to their hearts. We're able to love that in the space and allow the power of the Holy Spirit to work in that. And I think that that as things heat up, we're in yet another election year. The intentionality of church leaders making sure that the people in their churches are gathered around the table for listening and loving and understanding are are incredibly crucial. And it's so, in some ways, it's so subversive because it's so simple. It is so profoundly simple. And yet, yet often what people need is not, you know, another program, another thing. It it is the gathering around the table to create the places that are safe, where people can love and be loved. They can know and be known and that any sense of shame scurries away. And that it's in that place that, that heart transformation begins to happen. Yeah, and, and I love that you mentioned the simplicity of that because typically we all eat dinner. You know what I mean? <laughs> like that's something that's part of our, you know, daily schedule for the most part. So it's not like you're as you mentioned, it's it's not like you're trying to add on something new necessarily. Um mm-hmm. it's just saying, okay, how can we be more intentional with the fact that we're going to have a meal who is it that that God's laying on our heart that we can invite over for a meal? Mm-hmm. Right? And so it it, it becomes I know organic tends to be overused these days, but it is kind of that it's a natural, uh, you know, part of our rhythm of life. And it's something that we can, like you said, simply share with others. Yeah. And for those of you who may be thinking, you know, we've got a busy schedule, we can't possibly do this. Uh, can I just challenge you and give you a couple tips on how to do it really easy? First of all, you can always order out, order out food. Uh, just remember the, the the food is not the focus. I mean, the food is lovely. We appreciate it. But if you took even just 25% of all the energy stressing out about the food and really committed that to prayer, you would see the entire meal transformed. Because at the end of the day, people are hungry for so much more than an app, an entree, and a dessert. They are hungry to, to escape the loneliness that is so prevalent in our culture, to recognize that people are more than screens. Uh, One of the things that Leif and I have discovered, and many of you in ministry already know this, but it's a secret, and that is, is that often it's easier to have people over two nights back to back than one night separated. And here's why. Because by the time you've gone to make a meal, one of our favorite meals, because there's, it's so uh, friendly to food allergies, is, is Mexican. We love to have you know tacos, taco salad, nachos, because we use the corn tortilla. It's not got gluten. We cannot put the cheese on. We can do all the things to meet all of the allergy needs. But if I make Mexican one night, and I've kind of cleaned up the home, I've gotten everything ready, and I make an abundance, and then I just add a little bit of fresh stuff to it the second night, that's second night, everything else is already done. 
And so one of the secrets to if you are a person who wants to open up your home more often is do two nights in a row back to back with different people. Um, secondly, keeping supplies on hand that just make it so simple. Uh, a charcuterie board, which is the fancy name for a, a, a meat and a crackers and cheese and some nuts. You know, go to Costco, go to Sam's Club, buy the big thing of, you know, macadamia nuts, one of almonds, one of uh, pistachio nuts, you know, and a block of cheese and a couple things of crackers and just keep that in your fridge, keep it in your pantry. And it's just so easy to pull out, you know, handfuls of small quantities to put out because people at the end don't eat a ton of those things, but it offers a nice variety and a, a nice variety of colors and textures that it doesn't have to take a ton of time and energy in order to peel off these meals, pull off these meals. There, there are some efficient uh, kind of meal hack ways to make it easy. Uh, Crock-Pot is every cook's best friend. <laughs> yeah, no, and I love the, the practical uh, nuggets that you're, you're sharing. And in your book, Taste and See, um, you even have like recipes and, and fun things to, to kind of help people think through and, and plan as they're doing this. One of the things that you've, you've shared also um, that's very, very practical. And when you, when you said it, um, when I heard you sharing this, I was like, oh my goodness, like, like so many of the things that you say about around this are things that are so simple, so easy. And they're kind of like, why didn't I think of that? But I remember you shared that like, you don't have the entire meal prepared and done when you invite people over, you always kind of save something for them to kind of engage in with you in the kitchen, like chopping vegetables or whatever. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. Again, growing up, I mean, we had this thing, our house was perfectly clean and then you came over and dinner was all prepared and you didn't have to help. And that was like trying to do a service to you in the sense of you don't have any work to do. And what I've recognized is that hospitality is not what I do to you. Hospitality is something that we we partake in together. And when we do that, the barriers come down. So um, yeah. So leaving, you know, even if you're you're preparing a meal at a church or whether it's in your home, you know, leave some carrots unchopped and unpeeled with a cutting board. So when somebody comes in and says, hey, can I help you? Go, you know what? It'd be great. And what's funny is, is that when that person is peeling those carrots and they're chopping, all of a sudden they're not receivers of hospitality. They're the givers of hospitality. So you've wiped away the sense, any sense of, of inat- uh, inequity. And there is a sense that it's people are doing things with their hands, like peeling that carrot, man, they're going to start talking in a more vulnerable, a more authentic way than they would if they just had to sit cross-armed across the island in the kitchen and, and just watch you. And, and so rig it that way. Uh, even at church, sometimes we'll leave a few things just slightly undone. So if someone comes in and says, hey, can I help? We'll be like, yeah, sure, help us do this. And again, it's giving that sense of ownership, of partaking in, of being with that I think is, it is the joy of, um, it is the joy of opening our hearts to others. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And again, just the intentionality and just, and so simple, so, so many little simple things that just invite people in, right? And just kind of opens those doors and unlocks some of those, those conversations and relationships. Um, absolutely love those. Uh, Margaret, you, um, in your research, Obviously, you were looking at uh, a lot of things in Scripture that had to do with food, which is always fun. I mean, who doesn't love food? Um, but you found some particular things in Scripture that show up again and again that relate to food. And um, as you kind of dug in, it, it kind of 
uh, you discovered some really, really cool things. Can you share a couple of your, maybe your favorite, you know, different foods or whatever in scripture and what, what God revealed to you out of that? Yeah. You know, uh, I, 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 there are so many foods in the Bible. And so in taste and see, what I had to do is identify six foods of the Bible. And I sought out the people who plant process and procure them. Not those with a large technological background, you know, mass manufacturers. These are people of more of artisanal nature who cared about animal welfare, the quality of the soil. And, and as I looked at all the foods, I, I zeroed in on six and, and sought out the people who, who, who raise those, who, who spend their lives knowing that food intimately in order to understand the biblical mentions of food on a granular level. And one of the foods that caught my attention, of course, was oil. Um, and if you start to look for mentions of oil, uh, the olive and the tree and its leaves throughout the Bible, you will literally see hundreds of mentions. But I did not grow up with olive trees. Uh, it just wasn't my, that wasn't how I grew up in America. And so um, my husband and I actually traveled to a remote island on the coast of Croatia to bring in an olive harvest with a family whose olive trees had been in their family for hundreds of years. And it was pretty extraordinary because we would go to this remote place and we would spend eight to 10 hours a day picking the olives. And they're up on a, on a, a hillside. And so you're reaching upward and you've got this large white bucket underneath. You're massaging the olive tree. The olives are falling in. Any that miss are caught on the blue tarp below because you don't want to lose any of these incredibly valuable sources of oil. And as you're doing this, you're getting cuts on your fingers. You're getting you know scrapes from the branches. And, and your muscles are getting all sore. And yet when I would come back at night, I would look and it looked like my hands had been soaking in a world-class spa. Because God designed the olive with antibacterial, anti-inflammatory, and antioxidant properties. So that just as you are doing the work of the picking of the olives, the healing is soaking in. Just as many of you listening who are in the work of the church and you are doing the work and there are the scrapes and there are the cuts and there are the bruises that are happening, even as you do that through the power of the Holy Spirit, the healing of God is soaking in. And so I don't think it was a mistake that when we look for olives in their presence in the Old Testament, the primary place that they show up is an anointing. And God could have chosen any substance for anointing, and yet he chose oil, and in particular, the oil of the olive. Because if you go to the Middle East, 90% of all olive trees, of the billion olive trees on our planet, are all located there. And those who were anointed, who were they? They were the kings and the priests. And what were the kings and the priests called to do? They were called to bring healing to the land. And when they were anointed, it wasn't just a little dab or do you, but the Psalms described that the oil poured out and anointing would run down their hair, it would run down their faces, down their beards, onto their bellies. And in that, the light would often catch that oil reflecting the very favor of God. And so when Jesus comes along, he reveals himself as the Messiah, which means the anointed one. And this anointed one could have gone anywhere on the night of his betrayal, and yet he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of the Olive Press. 
surrounded by olive trees. And long before that day had come, those olive trees had long been planted there. How do we know? Because the average olive tree does not produce its first olives often until year 9, 12, or 15. And so Christ comes into that place, and he is likely next to the olive press. In an olive press, many of you have seen the picture of two large stones stopped, stopped atop each other and the olives are fed in and those stones turn and the olive oil emerges. And so here is Jesus in that place as those olives in the olive press writhe and wrestle under that weight. And here is Christ writhing and wrestling under the weight as he knows that he is about to endure the cross. Mm. And in the weight there, he is writhing and wrestling, not until oil, but until blood drips from his pores. And in that place, he says, not my will, but yours be done. And he rises up and he endures the cross. And three days later, he rises up with resurrection, healing power in his midst. And so you and I, as leaders in the church, should not be surprised in the book of James that asks the question, are any of you sick? Are any of you sick emotionally, physically, spiritually? Are any of you sick? Because if you are, you are to call on the leaders of the church to do what? To pray and to anoint you with oil. And so when you reach for that oil, those of you who are pastors and leaders and you anoint them with oil, it is symbolic, the healing that Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit brings. But even the healing properties of the antioxidants, the antibacterial, it is actually embedded into the very symbol that Christ and God calls us to use when we anoint physically, emotionally, spiritually to bring about the healing that only comes through Christ. Mm, I love that, sister. You make things come to life in such a beautiful way. And uh, I so appreciate uh, your heart and uh, just your words as you kind of encourage us and inspire us. I was wondering, I was kind of wrapping down our conversation and I really want to encourage people if 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 you enjoyed that story about um, the olive oil, um, then you definitely want to read the, the rest of the stories um, that Margaret uh, researched and, and wrote and prepared in Taste and See. But Margaret, as we're kind of winding down, is there anything else perhaps as we're talking to pastors and ministry leaders about hospitality or about what you learned as you did the research um, that you that you haven't yet shared, but that you'd like to share with them? Mm, can I give you two more just real, really practical things? Yes. Uh, one, just in the practice of hospitality, is uh, one of the greatest ways to love someone, the least expensive, but the quickest way, is before somebody comes over to your house, or if, you know, if it's a small gathering, find out what the person prefers to drink. And they may like a diet, caffeine-free Dr. Pepper. <laughs> they may like lemonade. But when they walk in and you hand them that simple beverage, it is so personal. It is so meaningful. And it communicates so much to them that you see them, you hear them, you're there to serve them. And that one little practical act can make a huge difference. The second is something that I've been working on a lot. And that is, is we are living in a culture in a world where people have increasing amounts of food allergies. And friends, they are no joke. And so I had a friend who, a new friend who would come over to our house and she could barely eat anything. And I just struggled to figure out what do you feed this girl? And I've actually spent the last 14 months of my life studying 
I've, I've gone to the store with her. I've taken pictures in her pantry. I have made the commitment to her that when she comes to my house, it will be a food secure, food safe place for her. And you know what's happened? I have learned so much more about her, but more importantly, I've learned how to love others who I didn't know how to love in this world. And so spend a little bit of time educating yourself, asking friends who have food allergies, not just what allergy they have, but what they can eat, what brands of foods that you can have. So when they come to your event and it's not just communion, right? It's got to be gluten-free. I'm talking going beyond that so that when somebody comes to your church, they know it's a food safe place and show God's love that way. I love that. So good. Uh, Margaret, how can people connect with you if they want to learn more about uh, your ministry or even learn more about Taste and See? Because I know that, uh, don't, didn't you also prepare um, like a small group study along with this book? We did, As yes. Yeah, with Zondervan, there's a six-session DVD uh, on Taste and See. There's the workbook as well as the book. You can learn more at margaretfeinberg.com. And if you happen to be in these great western states of Colorado, Utah, Nevada, Arizona, um, we are hosting the first annual The Joy Conference in Salt Lake City on May 1st and 2nd, 2020. There's not a lot that comes to this region of the country, and I have felt a passionate nudging of God to say it is time to create that, uh, to gather people together to experience more of Christ and the healing power of the Holy Spirit. And so you, you are invited. Awesome. Excellent. And can they learn, where, where can they get information on that? Is that at margaretfeinberg.com? Yes. Go okay. to margaretfeinberg.com or thejoyconference.com. Perfect. And we'll have links um, for our listeners in the show notes to all of the great stuff that Margaret has going on. Man, we certainly appreciate you taking the time to be with us today, Margaret. Always a joy to talk with you and uh, hear you tell stories. You're such a gifted communicator, and you just make things come to life. So thank you for making the time to be with us. Thank you. Don't forget to check out the new faith-based film about Jeremy Camp's incredible true life story, I Still Believe. And you can get group tickets for your church or your small group or another minister group by visiting istillbelievemovie.com and clicking group tickets. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us on this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast. And if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they too can benefit from these interviews. Again, we thank you in advance. And if you have any comments, any questions, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com or you can connect with me on Twitter. Finally, you can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the FaithPlay app. It's available for both Apple and Android. And so we encourage you to check that out as well. So until next time, this is Jason Day, encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.